Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pot of thunder and rock and roll. And today we've got former Democratic presidential candidate Andrew Yang. He's talking about his political career, how he got started, what it was like running for president and campaigning this year, and why he threw his support behind Joe Biden. Andrew's also talking about the work he just started doing as an advisor to Biden. And of course, we're going to talk about another issue that Andrew's really been vocal about, the way WWE treats talent. He's got a lot of thoughts on that and some ideas on how to change it. He's also a huge wrestling fan, talks about some of his favorite performers, shows, and matches. We'll hit on social media and why Andrew thinks that needs to be regulated to some degree. He'll explain his idea for universal income and the pilot program he's running in upstate New York. Interesting stuff with Andrew Yang just in time for the U.S. presidential election. Andrew Yang is coming up, but first... I want to talk about Raycon. Thanks to them for making this possible today. You guys know how much I love my Raycon earbuds. I listen to music and podcasts. Everything sounds great with my Raycons. And the new Raycon Everyday E25 earbuds are the best ones yet. They got six hours of playtime, seamless Bluetooth pairing, more bass, and a more compact design. And they're like half the price of those other wireless earbuds on the market. You know which ones I'm talking about. Raycons also have a great noise isolating fit. So when I'm listening at home with my whole family all uh, listening to something different in the house. The only thing I hear is my music or my podcast or what I want to listen to. And the Raycons are super comfortable as well. I can wear them for hours and nearly forget they're in my ears. It's probably why everyone from Mike Tyson to Snoop Dogg to me are loving the Raycon E25s as well. So get yourself a pair of Raycons so you can social distance in comfort and style, surrounded by killer audio and without breaking your bank. And Raycon has a 45-day free return policy so you can make sure they're the perfect pair of wireless earbuds for you. And I'm going to make it easy. Right now, you can get an extra 15% off your order at buyraycon.com slash Jericho. That's buyraycon.com slash Jericho for 15% off Raycon wireless earbuds. See how good Talk is Jericho sounds on Raycons. Go to buyraycon.com slash Jericho and do it now. Let's just jump right into it, man. So, um, yeah, let me record locally just as a backup. I'm, okay. I'm, I'm like a courteous guest. Thank you, man. <laughs> I've been screwed a couple times by technology over the last few months. It's crazy. As good as things are, you miss that record button or don't download in time or whatever, you lose everything. Yeah, agree. So, yeah, recording. It's great to be here. I'm on Chris Jericho's podcast. Yes. <laughs> We've been talking about this for a long time. Yeah, I you know. I'm sorry it took so long. Uh, the campaign trail was bananas. And at, at some point, uh, my team started yelling at me about... <laughs> <laughs> about... Sin- about- about doing things without them knowing it. So I was like, all right. <laughs> and then things started happening, uh, you know, in like a more controlled manner. Well, it's funny because we we uh, got got to know each other in the, uh, the the 2020 way. We started DMing each other on Twitter. That's how you become friends with somebody nowadays. Yeah, I made a lot of friends this way, Chris. But none as cool as you or maybe <laughs> people tied with you, perhaps. But, Mina, I was a huge fan of yours. So connecting with you online was a real pleasure. But I, I'm, uh, I grew up a wrestling fan. I remember your debut in WWE and like, you know, everything you've accomplished. And it's been awesome because you accomplished it through pure talent, merit, hard work. <laughs> you know, I mean, you were like the, the, the cream rising to the top in my mind. Well, I mean, we kind of have similar tales. The fact that you at one point were in the running and now you're actually on the cabinet with Biden to help him with his his campaign i mean how was it for you to get even to this level because i mean politics is i'm assuming kind of a lot like wrestling there's a million people that want to do it but only very few that get to that certain point well that there was more in common than i realized chris i actually think i appeal to people of every political background because i was talking about problems that in my mind have nothing to do with politics like the you know, the robot trucks don't care what the truck driver thinks you know, mm-hmm. you know, is, the, is the problem. And it was a, a really fascinating experience, Chris, where I'm an entrepreneur by background and I, I looked into running for president before declaring. And I, I thought I had a sense as to what the process would look like, but you never really know until you do it. Just like I'm sure if there was a kid out there who wants to become a professional wrestler, like mm-hmm. they think they know what it's like and then they get into the life and they were like, this is not quite what I... I thought it was. It's better in some ways. It's worse in others. I, I think the way that, that than what you imagine. I think the way it was better for me, and I think a lot of performers can appreciate this, is just the amount of 
energy and love and gratitude you experience on the trail when like you go and there are people that really believe in you and support you. You know, I, I know for performers, that's like a really profound experience when you meet fans who you mean a lot to and then you realize like, wow, people actually believe in me and like care about what I'm doing. Well, I mean, and I guess just to go back to the original question, to get to be a part of you know the original like, debates of eight candidates and all this other stuff, how do you how do you throw your hat into the ring and say I want to run to be you know the, the Democrat representative for the president of the United States? Like how does that how does that process all work? I'd love to unpack this, Chris, because maybe I can inspire someone to run. And, yes, absolutely. Yeah, and I I've been on record now saying I think that a professional wrestler or a former professional wrestler is going to wind up like a serious presidential candidate at some point. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Because the parallels really are really, really high. Uh, So the rules to running for president are very basic, where the only rules are that you have to be a natural born citizen and 35 years or older, which applies to just about everyone, if you think about it. Right. Yeah, you could run for president. Sure. So so then the, the real rules kick in uh, when it comes to raising money and getting attention, because you need to raise millions and millions of dollars for anyone to take you at all seriously. Mm. And thanks to folks getting behind me and my campaign, we ended up raising enough to compete. Uh, we raised about $40 million, all from small donors, really, this like from individuals who um, wanted to improve our way of life. So if you raise enough money and get enough attention, then the media will start covering you. And in my case, I came up through podcasts. It's one reason why I'm happy to join you here today, that if not for podcasts, I never would have gotten the support I needed to get on that stage. The The first debate stage threshold was 65,000 donors and 1% in three polls. So that was the goal. And as soon as they set that goal out, Chris, I was like, all right, let's go get 65,000 donors. <laughs> like, 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 let's, let's make, I mean, the, the toughest thing about the polls was actually getting on the poll. In other words, like having the pollster put Andrew Yang as an option was actually like the, the biggest concern. But then after we got listed, I thought we could get 1% uh, and we did. That's amazing. So, so I had that before when... Um when we were first talking about doing the Chris Jericho cruise, they said, well, we want to get 10,000 people to sign up for this, you know, information list. Or would you be interested type thing? I said, how, like, how many do you need? We need, we need 10,000. I said, I'll get you 15,000. And once was the deadline, you know, a week and a half from now. And dude, I ended up getting 14,900 and, and they're like, stop, we got it. We got it. We got it. Like if you need this number, I'll find the people. Cause I know they're out there. So I'm assuming that's kind of the same way that you, your attitude was. Yeah, the the measurements were super helpful because if you have a goal, uh, you feel confident you can hit it. You know, like yeah. the, and and that was our experience. Now, not to say that's an easy thing, like getting fourteen thousand people to sign up for something, or sixty five thousand people. Like you you need to be doing something that people are excited about. But the the debate thresholds were incredibly helpful to me, no doubt about it. And. We took full advantage. Were you surprised at how um, how big uh, and popular and viable your candidacy was? Because right off the bat, you were kind of one of the guys that had personality. And then people, like I knew your name a year ago uh, when you first started even thinking about all this. You know, it, it's if you'd asked me ahead of time, like, did I think that we were going to, to do well? I honestly thought we were going to do well. I guess you have to have a certain degree of belief or confidence to right, right, get started. Right. But if you asked me during the campaign, like, hey, can you believe all of this stuff that's happening? I would have been like, no, I can't believe it. Because you can say in the abstract, oh, yeah, we're going to do great. And then you get there and then there are crowds of thousands of people <laughs> or <laughs> folks with a tattoo of your face on their leg or, or whatnot. Like, like, like you don't predict that. And so and, 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 uh, and you also can't know what that's going to actually feel like when you see it. Like, even if you'd say ahead of time, like, oh, yeah, people will be excited. But then you get there and then people are excited. Um, it, it's a different experience than anything you you've had before. Tell us about those debates. It, it's funny because you, you know you, you know you've made it when you are uh, uh, characterized on Saturday Night Live, and when the debates were happening, you, you were on it, man. How was that to be on SNL? It was funny uh, <laughs> when I saw myself on SNL. I was like, yes, I mean, because the fear, honestly, Chris, was that they just didn't even bother, yeah, impersonating you. You know, you know, you, right. you know what I mean. 
Like there was one candidate that wasn't impersonated in the first uh, skit, and then they complained about it, and then they brought someone to impersonate them like the following week. Um, so, so I I did feel a degree of um, excitement to to be um, portrayed on SNL by um, uh, by Bowen Yang, uh, and the the debates themselves were were really um, transformative in many respects because like my name recognition shot up uh, immediately after the first couple of yeah. debates where you, you can feel this. And I think there are some performers that have had this experience uh, where you go from being able to walk down the street one day and like no one knows who the heck you are. And then like the following week you walk down the street and then like all of a sudden it's like selfie time and you're like, whoa, that's different. <laughs> <laughs> like, like that, that, that. That that was what those uh, first two debates did. You know, it's funny because back in the you know when we were kids, if you wanted to take a picture with someone, you had to prepare ahead, you had to have your camera and be ready. Nowadays, like you said, everybody's like, hey, I think I recognize that guy. Let's take a selfie. Like I don't know who you are, but my kid loves you. Can we take a picture? I'm like, nothing better than asking for a favor as you insult me at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> At least Google me before you do this. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But you had a lot of interesting platforms. And first of all, the, the catchphrase was great. Make America think again. Explain your mindset behind using that. Well, it came about through the acronym MATH. Uh, I think I've got a math cat somewhere. Um, and so I had a uh, joke on the trail where I said the opposite of Donald Trump is an Asian guy who likes math. And everyone always like thought that was really funny. Uh, <laughs> and then someone said, yeah, math is, an, ma math is an acronym for make America think harder. And I was like, yeah, make America think harder. So we ended up selling millions of dollars of math caps and math merchandise. And it really was about trying to dig into the real problems. Because to me, Donald Trump got elected because our economy has turned on many, many Americans, including many, many former manufacturing workers in the Midwest. And we have not truly grappled with what this transformation in our economy has actually meant to people in Michigan, Ohio, Wisconsin, all around the country. I saw the aftermath of these waves of automation in the Midwest, and you have too. And one of the things, so there, there are groups of people that understand what's going on in American communities more deeply. And, and that's people who've traveled all over the place. Like I know you have, you've seen this entire country many times over. Yes. Same thing with, with comedians, comedians, mm. musicians, and uh, professional wrestlers know this country in a different way because you've been to like every market, every mid-sized city, stayed in you know right. hundreds of different hotels and motels. And so you have a sense of what's going on in the country. I got that experience between 2011 and 2017. I ran a national nonprofit that I started called Venture for America, where I traveled around the country. Mm -hmm. And I realized that things were going poorly for more and more people. And I wanted us to think harder about how to solve those problems and not just attack the other side saying like, it's their fault, it's our fault. Like, you know, it, it goes back to what I was saying before. It's like the robot truck's not going to care about the political beliefs of yeah. the trucker. Like, like Amazon's closing 30% of our stores and malls uh, and paying zero in taxes. Like that's not a partisan thing. That's just like, uh, like you know, like uh, my mall closed. I don't have a job anymore. Like, you know, uh, like I go home and just order everything on Amazon Prime, but like there's no Main Street business, like no, no livelihoods. So that's what Make America Think Harder was about, Chris, was trying to dig into the real problems and then propose real solutions. You mentioned robot trucks a couple times. What are you referring to? Artificial intelligence and robots and, and, and obviously the, the fact that they're going to take jobs from human beings. Explain that a little bit more. Sure. So the example that just came to pass about two weeks ago was that Google announced that they have AI that can do the work of call center workers. They're essentially like, look, stop using call centers, just let Google do it. Uh -huh. And that sounds fantastic if you're a business owner, maybe. Um, but it sounds less fantastic if you're one of the 2 million plus Americans who work in call centers right now, right. making you know 12 to 14 bucks an hour. You're like, huh, Google can all of a sudden do my job um, by flipping a switch mm -hmm. because they've developed artificial intelligence that can take on that work. So it's call center workers, it's a lot of accounting and bookkeeping. It's increasingly going to be legal work and journalism. Eventually, it's truck driving because they're working on self-driving trucks right now using AI. And if you think about the, the, the reason I raise that industry is that 
It's the most common job in 29 states, driving mm -hmm. a truck. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, over 3 million truckers, 94% men, average age uh, 48. So if you imagine what that shift is going to look like on the ground for those people and families and their communities, it's devastating. So I was trying to raise attention to the fact that, look, we can argue about bullshit or we can forecast very clearly what's going to happen to the livelihoods of more and more of us and try and evolve. And that's that was the message of my campaign. Because it's a very viable thing, man, when you think about how much, you know, automated services are taking over. I haven't heard about automated trucks. That's actually quite scary because if you're talking about that, you're also talking about automated cars for Ubers and taxis and, you know, FedEx drivers or whatever it may be. This is something that's going to be a big concern over the next 15, 20 years because if you look at our cell phones from five, year, five years ago even compared to now, it's a completely different thing. All technology is, is increasing so rapidly. We're going to get to a point where, like you said, there's, there's a lot of jobs being taken over by robots. What can we do to, to remedy that, to move forward with it rather than worrying about being against us? Yeah, the, there are two basic approaches, Chris. Number one is to try and prevent it. Say, you know, look past regulations where like you, you can't have self-checkout or you can't oh. do, do, do things with, with software and AI. That's a terrible approach, mm -hmm. though you are going to see aspects of that in certain fields. For example, I guarantee you that uh, the medical doctor lobby is going to say like, hey, no, no uh, AI can prescribe drugs or do the things we do. Uh, you know, like, right. like th th there's going to be like some legal uh, jockeying. And then the second approach, which is the approach that we should take, is to try and share the value that's being generated more quickly and broadly. So if you have a company like Amazon that's worth over a trillion dollars, uh, they should be actually putting money back towards the public in a way that just we end up enjoying and uh, allowing us to transition. And that was the basis of my universal basic income, mm -hmm. the freedom dividend, where everyone gets, I was proposing a thousand bucks a month, and that would be enough to make a lot of people you know, feel more secure in their future, uh, but also enable more people to make better transitions in a time when uh, the economy is going to be transforming faster than ever. And the pandemic accelerated all the things I was worried about because we're seeing 10 years worth of change in 10 weeks right now. And if you go to a grocery store now and you see the self-checkout, you're like, well, that's cool. You know, like one less human being for me to interact with. Whereas if you saw that last year, you might have been irritated. And ta let's talk a little bit more about that, about your universal basic income. What exactly was it and, and how would you plan on introducing it into the, into the economic system currently? The universal basic income is an idea that has been with us for decades. Uh, Thomas Paine was for it. Martin Luther King was for it. Mm -hmm. Milton Friedman was for it. And it's uh, a plan that uh, just puts a certain amount of money into the hands of every member uh, of a society. In our case, uh, I was proposing every citizen gets a thousand bucks a month. From the government? From the government. Um, and and the, the goal is to build a trickle up economy where you get this money and then you end up spending it in your town on car repairs and food and daycare expenses and little league signups and the rest of it. Um, and it ends up going right into the economy, creating uh, jobs and opportunities where you live. Uh, so the, the goal was for us to have a tax that actually harnessed the gains of like the Amazons and Ubers of the world and Netflixes, uh, so some of the companies that aren't paying meaningful taxes right now, mm -hmm. and then put money into our hands. And the great thing, Chris, is when I started, people were like, wow, that seems very dramatic. Uh, but now as we're having this conversation, 55% of Americans agree that we should have universal basic income uh, now and in perpetuity. And something like 76% of Americans agree that we should have cash relief during the pandemic, including a majority of both parties. So what started out as an idea I had to frankly introduce to people now has mainstream and widespread support because we're in such a deep, dark hole right now where uh, we sent $1,200 to millions of Americans uh, in April and it worked. And, you know, it worked great. Like, turns out that money in people's hands it was a really good thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and now... Millions of Americans are looking up saying, like, we should probably do that more regularly, especially right now when we're still trying to fight this pandemic. You know, it's funny because you think that um, like a, the, the concept of like, well, how much money would that even be? 
But then we had to do it, like you said, in April when, when, when the pandemic hit and it didn't disrupt the country or put it. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of debt and all that sort of thing. But the idea that you proposed at first to me seems how in the hell can we do that? But we were forced to do it, like you said, in the middle of this pandemic. So it does it does prove that it can work. Yeah. And, and a very, very small proportion of the two point two trillion CARES Act actually went to us. Like the vast, vast majority of that money, like 85, 90% went to giant companies to bail them out. It's a lot more expensive to bail out an airline than it is to (laughs) send send people a thousand bucks. So we clearly have the resources, Chris. And again, when the money comes to us, most of us are just going to spend it back in the economy anyway. Uh, And Mark Cuban just came out yesterday and said, government should be sending everyone a thousand bucks every two weeks with the condition that we spend it. Uh, mm. And Mark's a very, very smart businessman. He's looking up saying, we need to stimulate demand because without demand, all of these mom and pop restaurants and small businesses are going to close. What about the, the, the pilot that you wanted to start in New York or you did start with 20 people getting 500 bucks a month for five years? Yeah, good old Hudson. Uh, project Hudson up. Uh, that- so we're giving that. That's what it, the town's called Hudson in okay. New York, not far from where I am right now, actually. And twenty people are getting five hundred bucks a month for five years. So if you do the math on that, they're going to get uh, thirty thousand dollars each over five years. JJ Reddick, who I think might be, um, you know, someone you know, uh, mm-hmm. is one of the funders of it. He's, um, you know, the the NBA player, uh, along with uh, Albert Wenger and. Susan Danziger. So a number of people have adopted this town in uh, New York, and we're going to start giving out the money pretty soon. Uh, So super excited about it. We're hoping to document some of the experiences. Uh, And the thing I love about it is the time frame, because if you know you're getting money for five years, that's like a long enough time Mm -hmm. for you to actually make different decisions. Like at first you get money and you obviously just spend it on whatever you need. Uh, But then if you know you have a path forward for that long, you might actually make uh, different moves. You mentioned earlier working with Biden. Let's talk about uh, what you're doing for him now and why you threw your support behind him after you dropped out of the presidential race. But before we do, let me explain why I've thrown my breakfast support behind the Magic Spoon Booberry cereal race, mostly because it's delicious and partly because of the ingredients. If you would have told me as a kid I'd still be eating cereal in the morning for breakfast as an adult, I probably would have laughed in your face. And that's because I had no idea that there would be Magic Spoon in the future. I try to eat healthy. My whole family tries to eat healthy. And now that I've found Magic Spoon, I'm able to start my day at the Magic Spoon way. Zero sugar, 11 grams of protein, and only three net grams of carbs in each serving. Magic Spoon has four great flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and my favorite, blueberry. It's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb, and GMO-free. Uh, you got to try this for yourself. It's one of those too-good-to-be-true things, but it's actually true. Just go to magicspoon.com slash Jericho. Pick up the variety pack and try it for yourself. And be sure to use my promo code Jericho at checkout to get free shipping. And then hit me up on the Twitter at TalkIsJericho. Let me know which flavor you like best. And Magic Spoon is so confident you'll love their cereal, they've backed it with a 100% happiness guarantee. If you don't like it, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. That's magicspoon.com slash Jericho. Use my promo code Jericho for free shipping. Try it today. Your cereal bowl, spoon, and stomach will thank you. So we mentioned earlier that you've been named to uh, to Joe Biden's council uh, for, for small business and entrepreneurship and, and and how first of all exactly what does that entail and second of all how is it working with biden after first running against him in the primaries uh, joe and i have always gotten along well uh, he's always a good dude um <laughs> you know backstage before the debates after the debates uh even when we were competing uh, even and this is the most impressive thing like people don't remember this very well chris because now he's the nominee and uh i'm behind him uh, beating Trump. Right. But there were tough times for Joe on the campaign trail early on. Like, 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 there were a lot of times when this, it was not clear that he was going to be the nominee. Right. And and he always had a great, generous spirit uh, towards me and the people around him, even when things looked really, really rough for him. So he's a very easy guy to work with. And my efforts of the Small Business and Entrepreneurship Council, it's really to make the case to small business owners around the country that Joe and Kamala are a better choice and that they have real plans that are going to help small businesses. I'm really passionate about this because I'm an entrepreneur and I ran a 
small private company myself for years. It's like the bedrock of my career, really. Like I still see myself as that guy more than politician guy or whatever the hell I am. <laughs> so, so, so the, the council is making the case to small business owners that uh, we need you to succeed, that there's going to be no recovery without small business uh, leading the way. And I believe that in my bones because if you look at the, the numbers or if you look at the reality in any town, like, can you imagine a town that didn't have like small businesses, restaurants, entrepreneurs, like, you know, the place is a freaking literal like ghost town or, you know, wasteland. Mm -hmm. And it breaks my heart that so many small businesses are, are hurting right now to the degree they are through no fault of theirs. It's just, you know, if you ran a restaurant, you're not allowed to have as many people in. Mm -hmm. How the heck are you going to make money? You know, like I, I talked to a guy, Um, you probably know some of his work, but Jose Andres, who's like a celebrity chef, and, mm -hmm. and he says he, he predict that over half of independent restaurants are going to go out of business in the next number of months without kind of, some kind of relief. It's terrible, like you said, because it, it is such a strange year of all of these business barely hanging or not even being allowed to open and it's 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 so crazy. Thankfully, you know, we've still been able to work, but so many people haven't been able to work. And it really kind of puts it into perspective just how quickly things can change and people just don't have anything. They've had this great, like you said, this great career or this great, uh, you know, business. And then it's just all done in the blink of an eye. It really is crazy to see how quickly it all happened. Now, when I was talking about the automation of jobs and universal basic income, some people thought I was pessimistic. And, and then this happened and they were like, oh, like, yeah. turns out that <laughs> was right. there was actually something, something to that. We need to do a better job of creating uh, a country where people can get what they need. Because right now there are so many folks who are suffering and, and really facing existential crises where they're going to lose their home, lose their business aren't sure how they're going to put food on the table. Like, like we clearly have the resources to do better than this. And we just saw it again, 2.2 trillion, vast majority of which just went straight to big companies, half of which frankly didn't even really need the bailout that badly. I mean, there are some businesses that are, that are um, doing okay. But, but, you know, what you're seeing is that more of these companies are going to figure out how to do more with fewer people. Uh, you know, you have companies like Tyson, the meatpacking giant that says like we're going to replace meatpacking workers with robots because they can't get sick mm -hmm. you know and, and you can't really be mad at them about that so there are some of these businesses that are doing fine on the top line it's just that people are going to be left behind more and more it's amazing how so many of these things that we're talking about were things that were in comic books and in movies in the 60s and 70s and now it's all coming true like you said like robots working at a meatpacking plant you know, you and I talking to each other face to face via computer, like things. Of, uh, I met George Lucas once and asked him, is it weird for you that all of these things that you put in your movies as fantasy are now becoming reality? And this is literally where we're at at this point. Like I said, give another five, 10 years. It's going to be even more automated and more Terminator esque. Yeah. So we need to try and accelerate quickly some of the good things mm -hmm. as well as some of the not so good things. Uh, and it's tough for people because a lot of people don't really have much confidence in government. And I get that, uh, you know, like the government has not really been inspiring a lot of confidence for quite some time. But given the scale of the problems we're looking at, you need government to get its act together. And when I decided to run, there were some people I knew from tech and entrepreneurship who were like, yo, like the, the government <laughs> is, is not is not like a high efficiency realm. Like, you sure you want to do this? And, and I said to them, I was like, look, we, we do not have a choice. Like, you know, when you look at the scale of these problems, uh, you need our government to get its shit together. Uh, and so I said, you know, like, I'll, I'll do my best because I knew that we needed it for... I mean, you're a parent. I'm a parent. Your kids are older than mine. Like, mm. uh, you know, you got like real, real teenagers. Teenagers. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But, you know, I, I knew that we needed to get our act together on a um, higher level if we're going to pass a country we're at all excited about to our kids. So uh, do you feel um, talking more about 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 Mr. Biden, Joe Biden, his platform for president? It seems a lot of it is Joe Biden. I'm not Trump. Like people will vote for Joe just because they don't like Trump at all and will just vote for anybody 
does this help your campaign? Does it hurt it? I mean, obviously you want votes, but do you feel people are voting, will vote for, for Biden for the right reasons or just because they want to get rid of, of, of Donald? Well, Joe won the primaries, I think in part because people had more confidence that he would draw voters who were sick of Trump. Uh, right. You know, like there were a bunch of us who ran as Democrats and, and it seemed like there was like a real move towards a degree of of comfort, familiarity, security. And I'm not sure that's bad or wrong. Like, I, I think at this point, Americans are looking for a degree of reassurance. And Joe is a very familiar figure to, to many people. He does not strike anyone as terribly extreme or ideological. And I think these are good things for America right now, where you look up and say, this leadership is not working. 72% of Americans think that right now is the worst time we've ever lived, um, which I'm going to suggest is not a good look if you're uh, like the incumbent. <laughs> the incumbent, you're like, hey, I'm now presiding over like the worst time anyone's ever... Worst time uh, ever, ever, like just period? Yeah, like the, the worst time that you have ever lived is this uh, 72 percent of americans say say right now yeah not a good look right <laughs> so so this this is objectively terrible and you know we're we're looking for a different approach uh i think many americans are of that mindset and will choose joe and kamala as a result and i think that's good i know like it, it's to me that this is going to be a positive change you think it'll uh inspire more confidence in the government or, or have we gone too far for that at this point well that to me is the major challenge chris and i may be a part of this is that if you look at the problems that we've been dealing with it's not enough anymore to say like look i'm i'm not irrational or erratic like i'm responsible you have to actually get the government to work in a way that's going to solve problems and benefit the American people. And a lot of Americans don't feel that right now. So the the fear I would have is that no matter who's in office, that confidence in government continues to deteriorate and then we'll never get anything done. Um, and so that's not about winning elections. That's actually about getting government to work more effectively. And it needs help. Uh, you know, and, and that's one of the things that I think I may be able to help with. Um, so there, there are a couple of one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about universal basic income um, or getting cash into people's hands is that would work and the government can do it. You know what I mean? Like if the government stands up or like, let's say I'm a, a an official and I tell you about my plans and promises, maybe maybe it'll work. Maybe it won't. Or maybe I'll get them done. Maybe I won't. But if I say I'm going to get money to you, <laughs> like we can do that. Right, 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 right. And I'm, I'm very, very confident that the money will actually benefit you tremendously and like mm -hmm. benefit you more than, than just about anything else I'm going to tell you I'm going to do. So that's one thing that I believe would actually fundamentally increase people's confidence and faith in government. And I know this because they've done this in Alaska for decades and it works there. Um, but anytime th this happens, people actually have a much more positive attitude about the government because it seemed like the government was actually looking out for them, did something real for you, made you uh, able to make better decisions for yourself. And then you're like, oh, I actually kind of believe in these guys now because like that to me is like the big move that if we make, it can actually increase people's confidence uh, pretty quickly. Let's talk about something else you've been really vocal about lately, and that's the way the WWE treats their talent. I want to get into that and hear why you're taking up the fight to get that changed. But before we do, let me say thanks to our friends, Steven Singer Jewelers, for not only supporting Talk is Jericho, but also for having our backs when it comes to those special life occasions that we uh, sometimes screw up as guys. So if you're looking to take that next step in your relationship and you need the perfect diamond ring to celebrate the occasion, go to IHateStevenSinger.com and check out the Ready for Love Engagement Ring Collection. And if you need some help picking out the perfect ring, Steven Singer has real expert jewelers on call to help you make your decision. Steven offers virtual video appointments, calls, texts, chats, emails, all with extended hours. So you can get the help you need to make you uh, make sure you get that yes. You need to get that yes. And Steven is not going to let you screw this up. Of course, you're going to get a great price and amazing quality. And that's why other jewelers hate Steven Singer, but that's why we all love him. Steven Singer's been selling online for over 20 years, offers the best guarantee in the business with a full 100-day, 100% money-back guarantee and free shipping. Plus, he's got interest-free financing available online as well, and that's just the beginning. 
gifts that say I love you every single day, back with decades of experience in the comfort of your own home. It doesn't get any easier than that. Just go to IHateStevenSinger.com, get fast, free, and safe shipping. Steven Singer Jewelers, that's IHateStevenSinger.com. All right, Andrew, you're a big wrestling fan, and you tweet about it all the time. But what surprised me recently was how vocal you've been about the way uh, WWE treats their talent and why you want to change that. What made uh, you become so vocal about this issue? Someone sent me the WWE contract. It is very, very long and robust. Like, it, it's a very long contract. <laughs> but it, like, like the amount of... The amount of control that the WWE has is incredibly high. It has made them or saved them tens of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars uh, over the life of the company. And that money came directly from the pockets of the performers. It's interesting because you hit so many points to speak about because I think a lot of it, that what you just described, is exactly the truth. But for us, in the business, it's just the way it is. And I don't begrudge any wrestler from signing that deal, any deal, really, because WWE is a quasi-monopoly, essentially. You know, you work for years with the hopes of being able to do what you love in front of millions of people for a living. You know, no matter what that contract said, you're going to sign it. Mm-hmm, exactly. <laughs> you know, exactly. Like, like, you don't have, like, real bargaining power, particularly, you know, if if you're just trying to you know make a living uh, in in the business and so th- this is really a failure of government to look out for the talent on this side and i'm friendly now with you know a number of performers and they they message me i mean and, and, and like I, that, that's how i got this contract and other things where they're sick of the bullshit yeah. <laughs> like, like but but there's no way they can like actually raise their hand and be like, "Hey Vince, like you know, like that this is messed up." Exactly, and you know because the power dynamic, you know, it, it's it's so uneven. So it's something that I would love to help the talent with because it's the right thing to do. It's been overdue for years and decades, and, and the the numbers. Since I'm a numbers guy, I mean WWE is worth like $3.3 billion. The Vince is himself a billionaire. I mean, this is well past the point where you could make any kind of like uh, dollars and cents cost-based argument about this. Like at this point, this is just the McMahons hoarding wealth. They could afford easily to treat the talent in a more fair and legal manner. They just choose not to do so. So how how could you help them if you were put in a position to? It's fun. I mean, so <laughs> I mean, if we win, I'm going to be in a position where I, I can call up the Secretary of Labor um, or in this case, it's the National Labor Relations Board, and then um, bring suit against WWE and say, like, hey, I think you're misclassifying your employees here. <laughs> and the damages then would be really significant. Uh, so that that is more or less the plan. We may need to have some brave performer or ex-performer come forward and say, look, here are the practices. And I have been contacted by folks who are like, you know, look, I... I I believe in this and I'm at a point in my career where they can't really do anything to me anyway. So, so like, 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 you know, let's have at this because customarily for a national labor relations board action, it typically has to be an employee that initiates. So that is one of the trickier elements of this, Chris, but I'm very confident we can get there because there are a lot of people that recognize that this is wrong and it's been going on for far too long. In my opinion, this really does have to change. And this is no ill will towards the WWE. It's just the way it is. Like you just said all of these things. You know, the fact even that they can show all of my matches on their network that people pay for and I don't get a a, a dime of a royalty, it makes no sense. It's not how normal business, normal entertainment, the normal world works. Yeah, exactly. You should be getting residuals. Like there's a, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, someone's raised is that um, Screen Actors Guild protections are really significant. I mean, you can see how like the you know the Hollywood folks get treated. Yeah, <laughs> and, a, and a lot of a lot of performers actually would qualify for a Screen Actors Guild by the, the basis that you're on TV, you have lines, like you show up, like you know. I mean, the ratings of uh, wrestling shows are higher than just about any other show on mm. TV. So like you know, and you're like talent, you're a performer, you're you know getting a script, like you you do your thing. So I agree with you, Chris, that we're going to need to exert uh, pressure from the TV networks, uh, from 
different directions. Because the the thing that infuriates me is that like you can't expect people to martyr themselves. You know what I mean? Like you can't expect someone to be like, hey, I'm now going to jeopardize a career I spent decades building, and they know that they're they'll get blackballed. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> it's like they'll get blackballed for some nonsense reason. They'll be like, oh, you know, like just wasn't a fit anymore <laughs> or whatever it was. Like, 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 you know, that's going to go down. Right. So the job is we have to make it easy for folks to step forward and say, look, like they should do the right thing. And in America, money talks, you know, so if it's the TV network saying like, look, the administration is saying to us that we're essentially like, you know, facilitating the exploitation of your workers by, 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 uh, you know, by airing your product and like, you know, we should uh, have a a tough conversation about this. The hope, Chris, is that they see the writing on the wall and they step forward and say, you know, well, we're going to start doing the right thing (laughs) because (laughs) like, like, like that beats getting dragged to a kicking and screaming. You know, if, if, if you get dragged to a kicking and screaming, the talent will see and be like, wow, they really do not want to give us our fair due. Mm -hmm. So there, there are different ways to get there, but I'm confident we can get there under Joe and Kamala because it's funny, and this is true for wrestling, I know, where it's like you've been in the industry for a certain period of time. Like, you get to know everyone just because, like, you've been in that locker room and, you know, it's like different eras cross over. The same is true in politics. Like, I, I was out there campaigning, and, like, now I can get to anyone in, like, you know, one or two phone calls <laughs> pretty straightforwardly. <laughs> So, so we're going to get this done. Like this is um, this is no joke. Well, so this is something that you're really wanting to to get into. This is something you want to take care of and change. It's a terrible message to people because I, I grew up a fan. It's like a terrible message to grow up a wrestling fan and then over time realize, like, wait a minute, yeah. like, you know, like like some of these folks are like really getting injured. Some of these folks are, are like you know, passing away early, like, uh, you know, in, in part because they're under these pressures to perform because of like the nature of their um, r- relationship where you know, don't have any real protections. Mm-hmm. Like it's actually to me, like there's this real arc of disillusionment that I think a lot of fans have. And, you know, I'm going to apply this to something else too. Like I think high level NCAA athletes should get paid because they're making hundreds of millions of dollars for, um, their institutions, the coaches are getting paid millions of dollars. Like the highest paid public employee in the state of Connecticut, I think is like the UConn like basketball coach or something like that. <laughs> you know, like, like the, and then these, these like the talent, the general message is, is that the talent should get paid what they deserve. Mm-hmm. And so if it's NCAA athletes, it's like, look, you know, if people are buying your jersey and like playing you in a video game, like, you know, maybe you should get a a little bit of that because, you know, like things like that. Well, you do get royalties for that, whether, you know, whatever the the percentage of that is. But but what we're talking about that really gets to me, like I said, like I did a movie called MacGruber 10 years ago. I was in it for two minutes. I still get residual checks. They're not a lot, 20 bucks, 15 bucks, you know, 50 bucks, but I'm still getting residuals from being on that movie. Here I am with probably a hundred matches on the network and getting nothing. I don't see the, the the fairness in that, if that's the right word. That's the right word. And um, great job in MacGruber too. That's a classic <laughs> film. <laughs> Thanks, man. I got my twenty seven dollars the other day from it. <laughs> Still, it's like a reminder. You know what my parallel is in that, Chris? Like I, I've written a couple books, right? And um. One of the books is getting translated into different languages. It's up to like maybe like 10, nice. 10 languages. What's it called? And whatnot. Uh, the War on Normal People. It's about some of the automation mm, uh, trends gotcha. that you and I were talking about and, and the need to evolve. But I get random royalty checks from like, you know, some other country, some other publisher. And like, it's not big money, but damn, if it doesn't feel great, you know, yeah. <laughs> like where, where someone sent you money be like, wow, like the, the Dutch publisher to send me you know like 500 bucks like that's great yeah but that's the point and plus and and not only is it great to get this mailbox money as i like to call it but it also shows that there is royalties owed to you owed to me from everywhere countries all over the world whether it is only 50 bucks or 500 bucks they should still be those checks should still be coming in there is so much value associated with your matches on the WWE network. Like mm-hmm. if you had to put a dollar value on that, Chris, it's a whole lot more than McGruber money. I'll tell you that. You <laughs> yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> like, like you should be getting like four and five digit checks on the regular for that. Um, given how much money they're generating. 
Well, I think we should have a conversation after. <laughs> I'll tell you that right now. All right, we've been talking a lot about wrestling, but I want to hear about how you got into it, Andrew, and some of your experiences going to live events. But before we do that, let me share this message from our friends at NHTSA. It can be a little frustrating, especially if you're in a hurry or running late, to find yourself at a, at a crossing, a railroad crossing, waiting for a train. And uh, even if the signals are going and the train's not even there yet, you may feel tempted to try and sneak across the tracks. But remember, don't do that ever. To the naked eye, trains often appear to be further away and moving slower than they are, and they can't stop quickly. Even if the engineer hits the emergency brakes right away, it can take over a mile for the train to stop. Think about that, over one mile to stop. By that time, it's too late, and the result is a potentially deadly crash. Point is, you can't know how quickly the train will arrive. The train can't stop quickly. Even if it sees you, it could end in major disaster. If the signals are on, the train is on its way, and you just need to remember one thing, stop, because trains can't. As we start to wind down, and there's a couple more things I want to talk about. First of all, we've talked a lot about wrestling. How did you get into wrestling? Did you used to go to the matches when you were a kid? Who were your favorites to watch? That sort of thing. So I was born in 75. So that means like I was in like elementary school, like WrestleMania, right. like one, two, and three. And um, WrestleMania three was like the big kickoff for me. It was um, uh, Macho Man against Ricky Steamboat. Yeah, classic. Um, like, like that that match. And so then... We we went to WrestleMania four like those like uh, one of those closed circuit viewings um, with my dad and my brother. We went to live shows, so I saw Andre Andre the Giant in person, and the rest of it. So I I grew up a big fan, and I had that arc I was talking about where it's like you're like wow this is awesome, and then eventually you're like wait a minute like <laughs> like some of, some of these guys like seem to be like going through very very difficult times, uh, and and you start looking at how they're treated. So I think I got into wrestling at a time when, frankly, you know, I feel like it would have been hard not to get into wrestling where mm-hmm. you, know, you grew up in that era. And then there was that other um, that, that other surge in popularity in like the 90s uh, with like the NWO and like the, the, the waning days of the Monday Night Wars. Those were good times. I think like, it's like my childhood and <laughs> then like, uh, you know, we had some fun and then you come back. And to, to me, the parallels between wrestling and politics are very real, Chris. I'll tell you that, like, uh, because you travel the country, you get in front of groups of relative strangers, you try and like, you know, like, inspire them or <laughs> like, right. entertain them in your case. But like, that, there's like a degree of it. it. And so my appreciation for what you all do has been high really my entire life. And the athleticism, the uh, training, the trust, you know, you have mm-hmm. to like trust the person you're in the ring with and the, the, the rest of it. There's just a lot of humanity to pro wrestling. Uh, you know, I, I think that anyone who pays any attention to it realizes that, like, the investment you all make is profoundly higher than in any other field uh, outside of, I, I can't even really think of many others. Really, it might be, like, the highest investment field there is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and and I, I agree with you on that. I thought I always thought it was cool that, you know, that, that you were a, a politician, you know, a presidential possible candidate that was – tweeting about wrestling and congratulations to Cody Rhodes and congratulations to AEW and congratulations to Chris Jericho. I was like, that's really cool. Oh, I would love to hear a bit about AEW because the, the and, and talent has, you know, that they let me know that like they feel well treated at AEW and I have natural sympathies for AEW because it seems like the scrappy upstart that is more sensitive to talent gets treated, uh, trying to go against like the, Goliath or Juggernaut in the form of WWE. And I think any wrestling fan knows that some degree of competition is positive for the talent. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just, yeah. Just that you know that there are actual like, options. So those are the, the things that immediately made me like AEW. Uh, but would love to hear about your experience there. Well, I think the biggest difference is kind of what we've been talking about this whole conversation is that WWE treats the business as a wrestling business because that's what it's been for 60 years from Vince's father and Vince's grandfather, almost from the old school carny uh, attitude. And you can see that with, you know, the independent contractor, for example. It's it's not right, but it's just the way it is, like I, like I explained. AEW treats things from a sports team perspective. The Khan family owns the Jacksonville Jaguars. They own the Fulham Football Club in, in England. So they treat the company like they treat their football team. And that's a whole different vibe as how, uh, how, as how the talent, the athletes, the performers get treated. Right off the bat, 
the, the thing, the, you know, not to get into total specifics, but things that I have here in AEW, I never had in WWE for 20 years. Even something as simple as paying your expenses on the road, like any team does. If the Jaguars go to play a game in, you know, St. Louis, the hotel is paid for, and here's the trip, and here's the team bus to pick you up and drive you around. That's just the way it is. It's not even a second thought, right? That's how it is here in AEW as well, which it's never like that in WWE. They still go with, here's your plane ticket, you're flying to Detroit, you're working Detroit, Chicago, Cape Girardeau, and St. Louis. So you rent your car in Detroit, you drop it off in St. Louis, you got to find your hotel rooms, you got to get a car that's got a good rate for the drop-off, all this stuff. And those are your expenses and your responsibility to do that. And that's another thing that I think people just like, are like, are you kidding me? You really have to do that's that? That's nuts. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. that's the biggest difference. That's a pretty big difference. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but but uh, I think what you said is right on about kind of like the, the lens that people have from different backgrounds. Like if you're used to owning an NFL team, you just look up and say, well, of course, we're going to pay for it. We have to. Yeah, exactly. You know, um, so th- yeah. to me, it's one of those things where I'm really glad that we were able to to take a chance and get this company off the ground and make it successful. Uh, and I have no intentions of ever going anywhere ever again. I like it here. I like working for the Khan family. And uh, it's been a lot of fun, which sometimes it was not as fun uh, in WWE. So it's definitely a whole different vibe here. Well, AEW's success is just a good thing for the industry, for the talent, for performers. Uh, so I'm I'm a fan like uh, of the new organization we're going to make some changes for the talent in wwe i keep harping on wwe because like they really are the behemoth of the industry sure like they they, they gobble up uh, the vast majority of the value like a lot of these marketplaces are like this ufc is the same in mma where like like there's a bit of a winner take all dynamic and so the the more you can introduce genuine options genuine competition it's positive and the more you can get fair treatment of workers in organizations that have reached a certain point um it, it's just the right thing to do you um you know you obviously like you said you're you're a wrestling fan but you use a little bit of that personality uh, to entertain your uh fans the yang gang which is the best name ever by the way that's a t-shirt uh you crowd surf you do uh, funny viral videos all this sort of stuff <laughs> how important is that for you to, to to show that side of your personality I was just competing, Chris, where, you know, I certainly couldn't out politician the politicians. And so I was like, well, like, what what do I have going for me? It's like, well, I think I'm like still a fairly normal guy. Uh, and I even would like I prefer to have a good time on the trail than not. And so mm-hmm. when you're with your team and you know this, too, it's like you're on the road all the time, like you're in a rental vehicle. In your case, it'd be with maybe a couple of other wrestlers who's <laughs> like going from place to place. It's the same as a candidate where you're going, it, it might be worse for the candidate because I'm in the, the rental car with folks that work for me. So imagine on both sides, for them, it's like, oh crap, I'm stuck in this rental car with my boss <laughs> for like hours right. at a time. And then for me, I'm like, oh crap, I'm like, you know, like I, I can't be a jackass because, you know, it's like, like I'm going to like ruin the morale of this entire trip. Um, so, uh, so when you're in that boat that you're just like trying to find fun in things, you're just like, all right, let's just have a good time. And then those videos ended up catalyzing additional support for the campaign. And so then being, you know, like, a, a competitor and an entrepreneur, you're like, all right, like if that's working, like, let's do more of that. So I, I found myself leaning into my humanity more because, Uh, It was actually a competitive advantage. I feel like most politicians have so much um, in the way of guardrails around them where you're not even sure they're human sometimes. You're like, oh, is this really your job? And they have entire teams around them too that are telling them it's like, look, keep it in bounds, keep it in bounds. But one thing I was grateful for, Chris, is that uh, like because of the vibe of my campaign, like I could... um, act like a person and then everyone would be like oh that's just yang you know whereas like if another politician did some of the things i did they'd be (laughs) right (laughs) you don't have Um, to be a stiff you know non-personable guy to run for candidacy that's the thing i like about it you can have some fun you know yeah i certainly i wouldn't have had it any other way um and there's like a lot of enthusiasm around our campaign to this day uh for the fact it was like a different approach to politics Uh, and i just think so many americans are 
rightfully tired of the way politics is like turning us against each other. Like it just doesn't need to be that way. Right, you know? absolutely. Like, the, the, like, like, like we generally have a sense as to um, what we could do to make things better uh, for ourselves, for our families. Like, you know, we could disagree on the margins, but like most people kind of have, have a sense as to where we should go. Uh, and the divisions are really just being uh, put up by folks who benefit from us getting mad at each other all the time, you know, and that that's to some extent politicians, to some extent various media companies. I've met now tens of thousands of Americans in real life. And when you just stand there and talk to someone one-on-one, 99% of the time, they are perfectly reasonable. They're perfectly nice. <laughs> like, 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 you know, you could like, that lane, you agree on most things uh, has been my experience. Last thing I want to ask you about um, is just kind of a hit on it, uh, social media. And you mentioned you have younger children. I have teenagers. And, and there's so much social media use amongst the kids. Negative effect, possibly emotionally, psychologically. Do you feel the government needs to step in a little bit more and regulate this? You know, um, Do you have any opinions on, on that? Yeah, I think you might have seen that Netflix documentary yes. just came out, The Social Dilemma. Yes. Yeah. The data is real. It is clear that our kids' mental health uh, is being reduced by social media. We're seeing record high levels of anxiety and depression among teenage girls in particular. And the government needs to do something about it because as a parent, you're outgunned. Like it's you on one side being like, hey, you know, try and get some outdoor time. And on the other side is like a, you know, two thirds of a trillion dollar tech company with the smartest engineers in the country just trying to like, you know, use a supercomputer as a dopamine delivery device like on your kids. It's like, is that a fair fight? <laughs> you know, and, and like, and the tech company is going to generate tens of billions of dollars this year on like, like, uh, on, and, and revenue. And then the government's like nothing to see here because our government is uh, just yeah. way behind the curve on these issues. So we need to get the social media companies under control where they have their ad revenue and engagement me metrics on one side, but then that we have our kids' mental health on the other side, and there needs to be a better balance. Right now, our kids' mental health is nowhere in the picture. Uh, and this is something that I would love to change. This stuff's real. Like you said before, it's like all the science fiction stuff we read about, it's real today. Like it is real today, but our government is stuck back in the 70s or 80s and acting like it's 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. You know, we need to evolve and advance. I'm uh, So I, I'm, I, I'm for creating a new uh, set of rules and regulations around use of social media uh, for young people in particular. Um, but it, it's not good for us, Chris, you know, as a parent too, you see it. Yeah. And I sense for a lot of reasonable people too, it's like, you feel like you don't want to be like a fuddy duddy being like, Oh, you know, these devices these days that they're, they're like screwing up our kids, blah, blah, blah. But these devices these days are screwing up our kids. There's nothing wrong with just like pointing out. It's like, it's like, 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 like the data is clear. So at what point do you do something about it? And what could you do? There's a guy that was actually in that, in that uh, documentary, Tristan Harris, whom I'm friends with, um, he has a center for humane technology where he has a whole set of different design choices that you would make for social media apps. Um, it would reduce their ad revenue, um, but it would make our kids happier. Mm -hmm. So there are, there are different design choices you can make, Chris, that right now the companies would never make on their own because they're just trying to you know maximize revenue. Um, so you need to have some regulations uh, on them that they're not going to like at first, but then after they adopt them, you know, they'll be fine. Um, they'll make a little less money, you know, uh, like that's life. Um, uh, but the, the, one of the reasons why I know this, they'll be fine is that a lot of their employees are parents now and they're worried about what they're doing to their kids. Like they're, you know, <laughs> like they're, they're, they're human beings and parents too. And they're looking around being like, you know what, like we might've taken this a little too far. So they just need some help uh, getting some rules on the books, and then everyone will be better off. Last question for you, man. Uh, who's your favorite wrestler, and what's your favorite match that you ever saw? You know, I still have to go back to, to Macho Man. Uh, Steamboat is my favorite yeah. match because it, it, was, it was just so formative and, like, you know, kind of made me a fan. My favorite wrestler of all time, the first person that jumps to mind for me is Macho Man Randy Savage. I just love that guy. <laughs> you know, <Yeah. laughs> like, like, like any, anything he did. I was such like when he uh, was the WWE champion. I was a kid, and I was like, "This is the greatest." And then when he lost it back to Hogan, I was so upset for 
days and days. <laughs> That's great, man. That's funny. I but never... there are a lot of other performers. Yeah, but there are a lot of other performers I'm a huge fan of uh, too. And it's great talking to you, man. Really, like you know, I I've been following you for at uh, this point, not to not to date you or whatnot, but it's been obviously like you know decades. <laughs> yeah, th- thirty years in the business. That's, that's incredible, man. Like you must take excellent care of yourself. Uh, you know, <laughs> I think I'm just pickled in vodka right now at this point. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's working. Whatever you're doing, keep doing it. Well, dude, it's been great talking to you, man. I'm glad we we're able to arrange this. And uh, next time we'll have to do it face to face. And I, I feel that we're going to have more interactions in the future for sure. Well, I hope so. Yeah, may this be the first of many conversations, Chris. A big yeah. admirer of yours, and and so glad that um, we could have that conversation about the way talent should be treated. Mm-hmm. Just, like that's this is not going to be the last that people hear of this. Like I, I'm a man of action first and foremost, and if I'm in position to take action, which I believe I will be, I will. Oh, I love it, man. Well, if you need some help. You know who to tell. <laughs> I, I, I will. Yeah, I'll tell you for sure, Chris. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks man. Have a great day, man. You too. Have a great weekend.